Welcome to European True Crime. I'm your host, Lisa. As always, you can find images from today's case on our Instagram, EuroTrueCrime. Transcripts and source notes are available on our website, europeantruecrimepodcast.com. Today's episode takes us to Spain, more specifically to Valencia and the surrounding rural area extending as far as Alicante. The port city of Valencia lies on the southeastern coast of Spain, where the Turia River meets the Mediterranean Sea. It's known for its city of arts and sciences, cultural and architectural complex, with futuristic structures including a planetarium, an oceanarium, and an interactive museum. Valencia also has several beaches, including some within nearby Albufera Park, a wetlands reserve with a lake and walking trails. This case is one of Spain's most well-known, and although it is considered solved, there are still a lot of unanswered questions, and many believe that the crime is still unresolved. The morning of the 27th of January, 1993, was a chilly one in the Spanish town of La Romona. 40 kilometers away from the nearest port city of Alicante, it was a small and peaceful town surrounded by nature in a mountainous area. Gabriel Aquino Gonzalez and his father-in-law, José Sala, were local beekeepers, and around 10 a.m. they arrived at a local abandoned house where they kept their beehives to do one of their rare winter check-ins on the bees. While there, Gabriel noticed something reflective on the ground under some suspiciously placed dried branches. He called over Jose to get his opinion on the scene. Jose had his hive tools with him, and he used his spatula to move some of the branches aside for a better look and revealed a large silver Mickey Mouse watch, as well as the remains of the arm that had been wearing it. The remains buried here would soon be confirmed to be those of 15-year-old Antonia Gomez Rodriguez, 14-year-old Desiree Hernandez Volch, and 14-year-old Miriam Garcia Ibora. Antonia, who preferred to be called Tony, was the youngest of three siblings, having a sister named Lucia and a brother named Fernando. She loved dancing and fashion, and after leaving school she was excited to start working so that she could put her hard-earned money towards her dream wardrobe. She loved animals, and at her insistence, her mother agreed to let her adopt a stray cat that she had found. She enjoyed spending time at home with her fairy friend and caring for them. It was a responsibility that she cherished. Desiree, also known as Desi, had an older sister, Rosanna, who was three years her senior. She was a strong and confident girl, and brought joy to those around her, skating through the town with a big smile on her face, chatting as she went. She was very athletic and excelled in sports, often earning trophies and medals. Miriam had two younger brothers, Fernando and Martin. She was a reserved girl, shy but very cheerful and possessed a special sensitivity. She was passionate about ballet, spending a lot of her free time practicing, and she had a love for poetry, both reading and writing, and would often share the poems that she had written with her family and loved ones. On the 12th of November of the previous year, Tony called into her local radio station to dedicate the song Major Tom by Peter Schilling to her friend group, including Desi and Miriam. The radio host asked Tony what her plans for the weekend were. She responded that she didn't know, but she was sure that she wasn't going to be spending it at home. The following day was a Friday, and the girls headed to the house of another friend, Esther. Esther was sick and wouldn't be joining them, but they still wanted to see their friend to hang out before going out for the night. They didn't have any money, but they had plans to go to the nightclub called Kulor in the neighbouring town of Picasent, 
where they would hang around outside to socialize. Miriam asked her father if he would be able to take them to the nightclub, but he was also feeling unwell. The three girls left Esther's house around 8pm, but had already missed the bus to the nightclub, so they had decided to hitchhike instead. 20-year-old Francisco Hervas and 19-year-old Maria Luz picked up the girls at the edge of Alcázar, but they were unable to take them the whole way to the nightclub due to having some car trouble along the way. They stopped at a gas station, a few hundred meters from the club, and that was where they parted ways. Francisco's statement seemed strange, and his account of the events would change over the course of the investigation, but the ending always remained the same. They did pick up the girls that night, but they did not take them all the way to the nightclub. 10pm came and went, and the girls hadn't returned home yet, and their families began to get concerned. The parents called one another, and learned that none of the girls had come back that night. Fernando went out to search for the missing girls. He first went to the Cologne nightclub, but nobody that he spoke to could remember having seen the girls there that night. He then went to the civil guard station around 11pm to report his daughter Miriam as missing. But the police didn't take his concerns seriously, and told him that they would not file a missing persons report until at least 24 hours had passed. Defeated, Fernando headed home to update the concerned loved ones of the three girls, before continuing to search for them for the rest of the night. The following morning, on the 14th of November, at 9.40am, the parents of the three missing girls went back to the civil guard to report their daughters as missing, and their concerns were finally taken seriously. They knew that the girls hadn't taken any money or extra clothes with them. In fact, Miriam had left her money box at home, with about 20,000 pesetas inside, which would be the equivalent of around 350 euro today. So if she was choosing to leave voluntarily, she wouldn't have left all of her savings behind. Desi had prepared her sports bag to go skating the following morning, and Tony had made plans to see a friend on the weekend. Acts that wouldn't have made any sense if they were planning on leaving the night before. They also had no history of running away or staying out without being in contact with their parents. The civil guard agreed that their disappearance was worrisome and began their investigation and search immediately. The civil guard questioned friends of the girls, as well as regulars at the Colour. José Antonio Cano Lancer, a friend of theirs, was leaving the Colour nightclub on his scooter. As he drove past the area of the gas station, he saw the girls walking towards the city centre and greeted them. They came to the conclusion that Tony, Miriam and Desi had never made it to the nightclub. 5,000 missing persons posters were initially printed, and the local community got involved with the search. They helped the family and investigators by distributing the flyers and searched everywhere they could think of to try and find the girls. Fernando was consumed by guilt for not driving the girls to the club that night, and he channeled all of his energy into getting as much publicity for the search as possible. The more people who knew about the girls' disappearance, the more eyes they would have on the lookout for them. The search was expanded to four regions of the country, and on Sunday the 15th of November, the first articles were published in the morning newspaper. That afternoon brought the first of many television broadcasts about the disappearances, and that night was the first of the nationwide interviews of the family. Journalist Patricia Murray offered her help to the families as a liaison between them and the media. Fernando continued trying to get as much media attention as possible, 
calling newspapers, radio stations, and television networks, and taking every possible interview slot offered to him. A media frenzy ensued. Television networks battled to get the most viewers for their broadcasts of the case, leading them to begin to sensationalize the case. Already at this point, it was starting to become noticeable that the shows and their hosts cared more about entertainment than the earnest search for the girls. Reports were pouring in from all over the country about potential sightings of the girls, keeping the family's hopes alive. None of the leads seemed promising until on the 21st of November, 63-year-old Dolores Badal, a resident of Picassent, said that around 8.15pm she saw the three girls getting into the back of a small white car that she believed already had four other people inside. The logistics of fitting seven people into a standard four-door car has been speculated on, and it is hard to imagine how they manage this. The UCO, which was the task force set up for the investigation, searched for the girls nationwide, primarily in the Picassent and Alcasa areas, with the collaboration of special forces. Interpol was also informed about the case, even though it was deemed unlikely that the girls had crossed the border. They searched high and low, leaving no stone unturned within the confines of the law. It was now believed that the girls had been kidnapped and were being held somewhere, and when there had been some reports of residential areas that it was believed that the girls had been seen in, the civil guard were not always able to search all the homes that they wanted to. This contributed to the tension that was building between Fernando and the police. Investigators continued their search for the girls, and the families continued their press appearances to keep attention on the case. Another 20,000 missing persons posters were printed in English, French, German, Dutch, and Italian, and another 20,000 in Arabic, and 1 million in Spanish. In total, 5 million posters and cards were printed and distributed. Patricia Murray helped the family secure some interviews with the media in England to continue to keep the case in the news. On the 25th of January, 1993, Fernando and Lucia, Tony's sister, went with Patricia to London. Aside from talking to the media, they spent a great deal of time at Scotland Yard sharing all the details they had about the girls and their disappearance. On the 27th, while still on this trip to London, Patricia received the call about the arm that was found with the Mickey Mouse watch by the beekeepers. She immediately knew that it was Tony that had been found. The Mickey Mouse watch had been in the description of what she had been wearing when she was last seen. All three girls would soon be found in that shallow grave in rural La Romana. Patricia needed to tell Fernando and Luisa of the discovery, but so far from home and their loved ones, Patricia didn't want to reveal to Luisa the certainty that she had that it was her sister Tony who was initially discovered. She only told them that it was still unconfirmed and that they would need to head home as soon as possible, but confided to Fernando in private that it had been the arm of Tony that was initially discovered. Back in La Romana, it had taken several hours for the local authorities to appear on site. They didn't initially suspect that the remains found belonged to the Alcasa girls. As far as they were aware at this point, there was only one body buried, and it was thought to be that of a man. The excavation began immediately, and soon they would discover that the remains were of three females. Unfortunately, 
it was on the one day that the UCO wasn't present in the area that the bodies were found. The UCO task force was in Madrid due to changes within the team being made, and were unable to be on the scene to supervise the excavation. Perhaps due to inexperience or lack of resources, the crime scene was not adequately secured and the handling of evidence was poor. Officials and witnesses freely roamed the area and they began the excavation before thoroughly photographing the scene. When they began the search of the surrounding area, the discovered items were not photographed where they were found. Instead, they were gathered under a tree to be photographed altogether, along with items found while excavating that were also not photographed where they were found. This meant that it was impossible to later determine exactly where each item came from and how relevant they were. During the excavation, they found that the girls' bodies had been wrapped up in what appeared to be a large greenish rug. Their hands were bound behind their back with black rope, and the heads of two of the girls had been separated from their bodies. The circumstances around the decapitation are unknown. They were in an advanced state of decomposition, and the area they were found in is home to a lot of wildlife. Other items found at the scene included binoculars, items of clothing, bits of rope, and pieces of paper. The UCO finally arrived later that night, after the bodies had been excavated and taken away. Only then was the area cordoned off and secured. With the inability to search thoroughly in the dark, the investigators returned the following day to continue the search of the surrounding area. One item they found in the area was noteworthy to them. It was a piece of paper from a hospital in Valencia, and on it was a social security number and a name, a name they were familiar with. Back in Alcázar, Fernando and Lucia had arrived back from London, and the families headed to the morgue together to attempt to identify the bodies by items found on them. Seventy-five days after the disappearance of Tony, Desi and Miriam, the remains found in La Ramona were confirmed to be theirs. The entire country grieved their loss alongside the loved ones of the three girls, and locals gathered in the streets as their bodies were returned to Valencia for their autopsies. Later that day, a special episode of Niev Herero's show De Tu a Tu was broadcast from the town's concert hall. The stage was filled with the grieving families, still in shock and processing the heartbreaking news. Local members of the community filled the auditorium, also grieving and enraged by the heinous crime. Nieves had the exclusive of a lifetime, and without conscience, she did whatever she could to make it as sensational as possible. The families, fresh with the news of their loved one's murders, were asked probing questions about their grief. The deputy mayor, José Manuel Acaya, was interviewed on stage, when Yevs kept asking him about the gruesome details of the autopsies. He deflected the questions over and over again, but it is unimaginable how any person would want to force the family to hear these details of their daughter's death and live on television. Later in the show, the announcement came that two men had been arrested under the suspicion of committing the murders. The name and social security number of Enrique Angles was on this hospital flyer that was found at the scene. He was known to the police and he and his brothers were frequently in trouble. Police went to his residence in Catarroja and no one would open the door. 
They then went to get a search warrant and returned later. This time, Enrique opened the door. He was at home with his sister, Kelly, and they were questioned while the apartment was searched. Police had discovered that Enrique had not been the one to go to the hospital. It had been his brother, Antonio, who had impersonated him at the hospital to be treated for syphilis. Antonio was also known to the police. He was well known to be a very violent man, even to his own family. He was also supposed to be in prison, but had disappeared after failing to return from a week of leave. This leave that he had seems to be similar to that of an unescorted furlough. Later, it was revealed by Kelly that Antonio had been there on this day, and that he had escaped out the window before Enrique opened the door to the police. This statement by Kelly has been questioned, though. During this time, Miguel Ricard, also known as The Blonde, arrived at the apartment alongside two of Antonio's brothers, Mauricio and Ricardo. Miguel was a known criminal associate of Antonio, so police questioned him too. They found that he drove a white Opel Corsa, a car matching the description of the vehicle that the girls supposedly got into that night. Enrique and Miguel were the two men who were announced to have been arrested. They were both taken to the station and questioned. Miguel initially gave the alibi that he had been at dinner with his girlfriend on the night of the girls' disappearance. His girlfriend denied these claims, and so he gave another alibi. He said that he had actually been in prison at that time. Detectives followed up on this and found it to be another lie. There was no record of him being incarcerated around that time. Miguel told detectives that Enrique was completely innocent and couldn't hurt a fly, but that Antonio, on the other hand, was a violent man and capable of terrible things. Detectives quickly determined that Enrique had not been involved, and so they focused on Miguel and Antonio. Miguel Ricard was born in Cataroja, Valencia, on the 12th of September, 1969. At just three years old, he lost his mother due to an epileptic seizure. His father, who was described as an alcoholic and abusive towards Miguel, sent him to San Juan Batista College for Orphan Children in Valencia until he completed his schooling. At one point, it seemed like Miguel could have a bright future ahead of him. He even got a scholarship to study at university, but unfortunately, he fell in with the wrong crowd. He started drinking, experimenting with drugs, and dropped out of school entirely. He later moved in with his girlfriend, and they soon had a daughter together. At 20, Miguel spent 18 months in the army, and when he came home, he quickly returned to his old lifestyle of drinking, taking drugs, and partying, which put strain on his relationship. His girlfriend eventually left him, and Miguel moved into the family home of his friend and usual drug supplier, Antonio Angles. Antonio was born in Brazil on the 25th of July, 1966. When he was two years old, his family moved from Sao Paulo to Valencia. Their home was not a happy one. Nuessa, Antonio's mother, was first abused by her husband, and as her nine children got older, some of them started to abuse her too. Antonio was the most violent and would frequently abuse his mother and his siblings. He would knock his mother's and his sister Kelly's heads together often, and he once held a gun to Enrique's head and said that he would kill him if he became a nuisance. His brother Enrique had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and had developed an alcohol addiction at a young age, leading to hospitalization. After Miguel's confession, police searched for Antonio. 
After following many possible leads and potential sightings, it is believed that he made it from Valencia to Lisbon and escaped in a freighter. Despite the unprecedented police force deployed to capture him, they were unable to find him. While Miguel was being kept in a holding cell, the autopsies were underway. The six doctors conducted the autopsies of the three girls without the leadership of the supervising medical examiner, who was on leave. The bodies were autopsied in the order they were found, and so the first of the girls to be autopsied was Tony. Her remains showed various signs of rape that had occurred. Her hands were tied behind her back with black rope, one of which had been wearing the Mickey Mouse watch that led to their discovery. She was one of the girls who had been found without her head attached, but the cause of the decapitation could not be found. Ultimately, they concluded that her death had been caused by a gunshot to the head. The second girl found, and therefore the second autopsied, was Desi. She was also found with her arms bound behind her back and decapitated. There were signs that wildlife had scavenged on her body, but the majority of her clothing had remained intact. She too had been raped, but her body also showed signs of mutilation by her killer. One of her nipples had been removed using some kind of pliers, and although her cause of death, like Tony's, was determined to be a gunshot wound to the head, she had also sustained stab wounds to her torso. The doctors then moved on to conduct the autopsy of the final girl, Miriam. Her right hand was missing from her body, which was eventually partially recovered in 2019, and she had lost some of her teeth, which doctors believe had likely happened due to a beating. As with Tony and Desi, Miriam's body showed signs of rape, but unlike the other girls, it appeared that these assaults had taken place both pre- and post-mortem. The day following the first autopsy, Fernando asked for a second autopsy to be performed on the girls, as there had been whispers that the first autopsy was not adequately conducted. The family lawyers spoke with the judge at the investigative courts. They agreed, and the second autopsy began by a different doctor. The second autopsy revealed the misconduct from the first. Body parts had been unnecessarily amputated, and the remains and the clothes had been washed, removing all possible traces of forensic evidence that could be found. It was also stated during this autopsy that a bullet was found in the hand of one of the victims that had been missed in the previous autopsy. The forensic evidence that had been found during the first autopsy had been poorly collected. Fifteen hairs had been found on the remains and were essentially bundled up and stored together in one container. This was in the time before people had faith in DNA testing and while the science was still in its infancy. The evidence against Miguel was circumstantial and while the details from the autopsies were coming to light, detectives continued to question him. Around midnight on the 28th of January, Miguel signed his first official declaration, a confession, the first of many. The first confession was vague and missing a lot of key details. Suspiciously, immediately after the investigators found new evidence, his statements would continue to change and evolve to match the latest details in the case. His fourth declaration is the one that would be referenced for the remainder of the investigation. However, it's worth noting that Miguel would later proclaim that he was an innocent man and that all of these confessions were the result of torture and coercion. In this fourth version of his confession, it was stated that on the night of the disappearance, Miguel and Antonio were out driving around in Miguel's white opal Corsa when they came across the girls hitchhiking and picked them up. 
The girls had been asked to be dropped off at the Calor nightclub, and when Antonio passed the nightclub and continued driving, the girls protested. Antonio responded by punching the girls in order to silence them. This was supposedly the moment when Miriam lost her teeth. They then drove to a hut in Lombay, where the girls were tied up, held overnight, and one by one were raped and assaulted by Antonio. At one point during the night, it was alleged that Antonio had taken a break from torturing the girls to go to a bar with Miguel to have some food and a drink. They then supposedly returned to the hut, and when Antonio had had enough of assaulting the girls, he and Miguel went to sleep, using a rug from the hut to cover themselves. The following morning, Antonio disappeared for a few hours, and when he returned, he told Miguel that the girls would have to be killed to avoid them being identified. He then stated that Antonio led the girls outside to the car, arms bound, made them kneel down, and then shot them each once in the head. They dug the hole with tools they had supposedly brought with them, then used the rug that they had taken from the hut to line the pit before dumping the girls into it. They then folded the protruding carpet over them, filled the hole with dirt, and covered it with the branches. According to this confession, he and Antonio acted alone. As news of the arrests and the discoveries made in the autopsies were released to the public, members of the community, as well as the country as a whole, were outraged. People demanded justice for the girls and were quick to condemn Miguel and Antonio. There were some, though, who had their doubts. The arrest had been made so quickly and the evidence was shaky. The media, however, seemed determined to capitalize off the pain of the families, no matter the cost, asking the family horrific questions. How does it feel to know that your daughter was found decapitated? How does it feel to know your daughter's nipples were removed with pliers? They did whatever they could to provoke an emotional response to the devastated loved ones of the Alcasa girls. The investigators were going to prosecute Miguel, and the long preparation for the trial began. The families of the girls were aware that the longest jail sentence allowed in Spain was 30 years, and often offenders served less time than that. They wanted to protect other girls from potentially becoming the victims of repeat offenders, so they set out to try and make changes in the legislation. They got a group of volunteers and put together a referendum. Their initial goal was to acquire 2 million signatures, and in the end they gathered 3 million. They were able to have an impact on the legislation and sentencing, although as a member of the European Union, Spain is also beholden to their laws. Miguel cycled through seven lawyers over the years until eventually Manuel López Almanza was appointed on the 7th of January 1997, with only four months left until the trial began and 8,000 documents pertaining to the trial that needed to be reviewed in that time. Leading up to the trial, Fernando spoke out, asking for the trial to be delayed. He was not convinced of Miguel and Antonio's guilt and felt that there had been too many unfollowed leads. Over the years, people began to learn the value of DNA testing, and the science behind it had been making advancements. The hairs found on the girls had eventually been tested. Three had been damaged or contaminated and were unable to be tested. The other 12 revealed between five and seven different possible profiles, none of which matched Miguel or Antonio. Also, DNA had been found on the rug from the burial site, and there were requests made for testing to be done before the trial began, but the courts denied these requests, and the trial went ahead as planned. On Monday, the 12th of May, 1997, 
one of the biggest trials in Spanish history began, lasting almost three months. Miguel's defense relied on the lack of physical or forensic evidence and the circumstantial nature of the prosecution's case. The only thing connecting Miguel to the crime scene was a piece of paper with Enrique's name on it that had been found at an unknown location somewhere within the vicinity of the burial site. They also pointed out all of the mistakes and misconduct that had been made throughout the investigation, such as the poor handling of evidence at the crime scene, the leads for alternative suspects that were allegedly reported and never followed up on, and also Miguel's claims of torture and coercion by the investigators that led to his confessions. Another issue that came to light in the trial was the autopsy footage. Typically, the raw and complete autopsy footage is supposed to be submitted for the trial. However, in total, only 20 minutes of footage was shown. It was alleged that there was no audio and that some parts were sped up, some parts were repeated, and some parts were removed entirely. The trial came to an end on the 30th of July, and over a month later, on Friday, the 5th of September, the verdict was in. Miguel Ricard was convicted of the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Tony, Miriam, and Desi, and sentenced to 170 years in prison for his role in the brutal crimes. There continued to be heavy debate within the community and in the media between those who believed that Miguel and Antonio had committed the crimes and those who believed that a miscarriage of justice had taken place and that the perpetrators were still out there. Fernando Garcia had teamed up with criminologist Juan Ignacio Blanco years before the trial to conduct their own investigation in parallel with that of the UCO. Now they appeared on television attempting to debunk the state's case and began to openly name and accuse powerful politicians, businessmen and members of the civil guard of being involved in a pedophile ring. They claimed that it was this group of people who were behind the abduction, rapes and murders of the girls. They even claimed that they had acquired a snuff film that proved it. However, the existence of the snuff film has never been confirmed. In 2009, Juan and Fernando were sued for defamation and were each ordered to pay large amounts in compensation. Fernando was ordered to pay €30,000 in compensation to nine individuals and an additional €15,000 fine, totaling €285,000. Juan had to pay a total of €350,000 in compensation and also received a sentence of two years in prison a lenient sentence considering the prosecution was aiming for 16-year sentences for each of the men. Despite his prison sentence, Juan has remained a highly regarded criminologist and even founded two well-known websites for archiving criminal offences, Murderpedia.org and DeathPenaltyUSA.org. Then in 2012, Inés del Rio Prada, a Spanish terrorist who had been sentenced to 3,828 years appealed to the European Court of Human Rights. They ruled against Spain in October of 2013, suspending the Parot Doctrine, demanding Inez's immediate release and for the Spanish government to pay €30,000 in compensation to her. The ruling came because holding a prisoner for more than 30 years was deemed cruel and unusual punishment by the European Union. This 30-year maximum could be further reduced by good behavior and participation in rehabilitative measures such as work and study. This ruling meant that many of Spain's prisoners were due for immediate release, including Miguel Ricard. On the 29th of November 2013, 
Miguel was released from prison after serving only 21 years of his 170-year sentence. The day after his release, he gave a single interview by phone in which he continued to proclaim his innocence and wrongful conviction, saying that he was a scapegoat. Since then, Miguel has lived a quiet life, and his last recorded sighting was in Madrid in January of 2021. Antonio Inglés is still considered the mastermind behind these atrocious crimes, and to this day, he remains one of the world's most wanted fugitives. The murders of Tony Gomez Rodriguez, Desiree Hernandez Volch, and Miriam Garcia Ibora are officially considered solved, and the investigation by the state has ended. However, there are many people, including Fernando Garcia, who don't believe that Miguel and Antonio are guilty and continue to fight for justice for the Alcázar girls. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. You can find European True Crime on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Patreon. Links are available on our website listed in the episode description.